Section 6 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 6. Theodore Roosevelt. December 2, 1902. Part 2. On July 4th last, on the 126th anniversary of the Declaration of Our Independence, peace and amnesty were promulgated in the Philippine Islands. Some trouble has since, from time to time, threatened with Mohammedan Moros, but with the late insurrectionary Filipinos the war has entirely ceased. Civil government has now been introduced. Not only does each Filipino enjoy such rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as he has never before known during the recorded history of the islands, but the people, taken as a whole, now enjoy a measure of self-government greater than that granted to any other Orientals by any foreign power, and greater than that enjoyed by any other Orientals under their own governments, save the Japanese alone. We have not gone too far in granting these rights of liberty and self-government, but we have certainly gone to the limit that in the interests of the Philippine people themselves it was wise or just to go. To hurry matters, to go faster than we are now going, would entail calamity on the people of the islands. No policy ever entered into by the American people has vindicated itself in more signal manner than the policy of holding the Philippines. The triumph of our arms, above all the triumph of our laws and principles, has come sooner than we had any right to expect. Too much praise cannot be given to the army for what it has done in the Philippines both in warfare and from an administrative standpoint in preparing the way for civil government, and similar credit belongs to the civil authorities for the way in which they have planted the seeds of self-government in the ground thus made ready for them. The courage, the unflinching endurance, the high soldiery efficiency, and the general kind-heartedness and humanity of our troops have been strikingly manifested. There now remain only some 15,000 troops in the islands. All told, over 100,000 have been sent there. Of course, there have been individual instances of wrongdoing among them. They warred over fearful difficulties of climate and surroundings, and under the strain of the terrible provocations which they continually received from their foes, Occasional instances of cruel retaliation occurred. Every effort has been made to prevent such cruelties, and finally these efforts have been completely successful. Every effort has also been made to detect and punish the wrongdoers. After making all allowance for these misdeeds, it remains true that few indeed have been the instances in which war has been waged by a civilized power against semi-civilized or barbarous forces where there has been so little wrongdoing by the victors as in the Philippine Islands. On the other hand, the amount of difficult, important, and beneficent work which has been done is well-nigh incalculable. Taking the work of the army and the civil authorities together, it may be questioned whether anywhere else in modern times the world has seen a better example of real constructive statesmanship than our people have given in the Philippine Islands. High praise should also be given those Filipinos, in the aggregate very numerous, who have accepted the new conditions and joined with our representatives to work with hearty goodwill 
for the welfare of the islands. The army has been reduced to the minimum allowed by law. It is very small for the size of the nation, and most certainly should be kept at the highest point of efficiency. The senior officers are given scant chance under ordinary conditions to exercise commands commensurate with their rank, under circumstances which would fit them to do their duty in time of actual war. A system of maneuvering our army in bodies of some little size has begun and should be steadily continued. Without such maneuvers, it is folly to expect that in the event of hostilities with any serious foe, even a small army corps could be handled to advantage. Both our officers and enlisted men are such that we can take hearty pride in them. No better material can be found, but they must be thoroughly trained, both as individuals and in the mass. The marksmanship of the men must receive special attention. In the circumstance of modern warfare, the man must act far more on his own individual responsibility than ever before, and the high individual efficiency of the unit is of the utmost importance. Formerly, this unit was the regiment. It is now not the regiment, not even the troop or company. It is the individual soldier. Every effort must be made to develop every workmanlike and soldierly quality in both the officer and the enlisted man. I urgently call your attention to the need of passing a bill providing for a general staff and for the reorganization of the supply departments on the lines of the bill proposed by the Secretary of War last year. When the young officers enter the Army from West Point, they probably stand above their compeers in any other military service. Every effort should be made by training, by reward of merit, by scrutiny into their careers and capacity to keep them of the same high relative excellence throughout their careers. The measure providing for the reorganization of the militia system and for securing the highest efficiency in the National Guard, which has already passed the House, should receive prompt attention and action. It is of great importance that the relation of the National Guard to the militia and volunteer forces of the United States should be defined, and that in place of our present obsolete laws, a practical and efficient system should be adopted. Provision should be made to enable the Secretary of War to keep cavalry and artillery horses, worn out in long performance of duty. Such horses fetch but a trifle when sold, and rather than turn them out to the misery awaiting them when thus disposed of, it would be better to employ them at light work around the posts, and when necessary to put them painlessly to death. For the first time in our history, naval maneuvers on a large scale are being held under the immediate command of the Admiral of the Navy. Consistently increasing attention is being paid to the gunnery of the Navy, but it is yet far from what it should be. I earnestly urge that the increase asked for by the Secretary of the Navy in the appropriation for improving the marksmanship be granted. In battle, the only shots that count are the shots that hit. It is necessary to provide ample funds for practice with the great guns in times of peace. These funds must provide not only for the purchase of projectiles, but for allowances for prizes to encourage the gun crews, and especially the gun pointers, and for perfecting an intelligent system under which alone it is possible to get good practice. There should be no halt in the work of building up the Navy. 
providing every year additional fighting craft. We are a very rich country, vast in extent of territory and great in population, a country, moreover, which has an army diminutive indeed when compared with that of any other first-class power. We have deliberately made our own certain foreign policies which demand the possession of a first-class navy. The Isthmian Canal will greatly increase the efficiency of our navy if the navy is of sufficient size, but if we have an inadequate navy, then the building of the canal would be merely giving a hostage to any power of superior strength. The Monroe Doctrine should be treated as the cardinal feature of American foreign policy, but it would be worse than idle to assert it unless we intended to back it up, and it can be backed up only by a thoroughly good navy. A good navy is not a provocative of war. It is the surest guarantee of peace. Each individual unit of our Navy should be the most efficient of its kind as regards both material and personnel that is to be found in the world. I call your special attention to the need of providing for the manning of the ships. Serious trouble threatens us if we cannot do better than we are now doing as regards securing the services of a sufficient number of the highest type of sailormen, of sea mechanics. The veteran seamen of our warships are of as high a type as can be found in any navy which rides the waters of the world. They are unsurpassed in daring, in resolution, in readiness, in thorough knowledge of their profession. They deserve every consideration that can be shown them, but there are not enough of them. It is no more possible to improvise a crew than it is possible to improvise a warship, to build the finest ship with the deadliest battery, and to send it afloat with a raw crew, no matter how brave they were individually, would be to ensure disaster if a foe of average capacity were encountered. Neither ships nor men can be improvised when war has begun. We need a thousand additional officers in order to properly man the ships now provided for and under construction. The classes at the Naval School at Annapolis should be greatly enlarged. At the same time that we thus add the officers where we need them, we should facilitate the retirement of those at the head of the list whose usefulness has become impaired. Promotion must be fostered if the service is to be kept efficient. The lamentable scarcity of officers and the large number of recruits and of unskilled men necessarily put aboard the new vessels as they have been commissioned has thrown upon our officers and especially on the lieutenants and junior grades, unusual labor and fatigue, and has gravely strained their powers of endurance. Nor is there sign of any immediate let-up in this strain. It must continue for some time longer, until more officers are graduated from Annapolis, and until the recruits become trained and skillful in their duties. In these difficulties, incident upon the development of our war fleet, the conduct of all our officers— has been credible to the service, and the lieutenants and junior grades in particular have displayed an ability and a steadfast cheerfulness which entitles them to the ungrudging thanks of all who realize the disheartening trials and fatigues to which they are of necessity subjected. There is not a cloud on the horizon at present. There seems not the slightest of chance of trouble with a foreign power. We most earnestly hope that this state of things may continue, and the way to ensure its continuance 
is to provide for a thoroughly efficient navy. The refusal to maintain such a navy would invite trouble, and if trouble came, would ensure disaster. Fatuous self-complacency or vanity or short-sightedness in refusing to prepare for danger is both foolish and wicked in such a nation as ours, and past experience has shown that such fatuity in refusing to recognize or prepare for any crisis in advance is usually succeeded by a mad panic of hysterical fear once the crisis has actually arrived. The striking increase in the revenues of the Post Office Department shows clearly the prosperity of our people and the increasing activity of the business of the country. The receipts of the Post Office Department for the fiscal year ending June 30 last amounted to $121,848,047.26, an increase of $10,216,853.87 over the preceding year, the largest increase known in the history of the Postal Service. The magnitude of this increase will best appear from the fact that the entire postal receipts for the year 1860 amounted to but $8,518,067. Rural free delivery service is no longer in the experimental stage. It has become a fixed policy. The results following its introduction have fully justified the Congress in the large appropriations made for its establishment and extension. The average yearly increase in post office receipts in the rural districts of the country is about 2%. We are now able, by actual results, to show that where rural free delivery service has been established to such an extent as to enable us to make comparisons, the yearly increase has been upward of 10%. On November 1, 1902, 11,650 rural free delivery routes had been established and were in operation, covering about one-third of the territory of the United States available for rural free delivery service. There are now, awaiting the action of the Department petitions and applications for the establishment of 10,748 additional routes. This shows conclusively the want which the establishment of the service has met and the need of further extending it as rapidly as possible. It is justified both by the financial results and by the practical benefits to our rural population. It brings the men who live on the soil into close relations with the active business world. It keeps the farmer in daily touch with the markets. It is a potential educational force. It enhances the value of farm property, makes farm life far pleasanter and less isolated and will do much to check the undesirable current from country to city. It is hoped that the Congress will make liberal appropriations for the continuance of the service already established and for its further extension. Few subjects of more importance have been taken up by the Congress in recent years than the inauguration of the system of nationally aided irrigation for the arid regions of the Far West. A good beginning therein has been made. Now that this policy of national irrigation has been adopted, the need of thorough and scientific forest protection will grow more rapidly than ever throughout the public land states. Legislation should be provided for the protection of the game and the wild creatures generally on the forest reserves. The senseless slaughter of game, 
which can by judicious protection be permanently preserved on our national reserves for the people as a whole, should be stopped at once. It is, for instance, a serious count against our national good sense to permit the present practice of butchering off such a stately and beautiful creature as the elk for its antlers or tusks. So far as they are available for agriculture, and to whatever extent they may be reclaimed under the national irrigation law, the remaining public lands should be held rigidly for the home builder, the settler who lives on his land, and for no one else. In their actual use, the desert land law, the timber and stone law, and the commutation clause of the homestead law have been so perverted from the intention with which they were enacted as to permit the acquisition of large areas of the public domain for other than actual settlers and the consequent prevention of settlement. Moreover, the approaching exhaustion of the public ranges has of late led to much discussion as to the best manner of using these public lands in the West, which are suitable chiefly or only for grazing. The sound and steady development of the West depends upon the building up of homes therein. Much of our prosperity as a nation has been due to the operation of the homestead law. On the other hand, we should recognize the fact that in the grazing region, the man who corresponds to the homesteader may be unable to settle permanently if only allowed to use the same amount of pasture land that his brother, the homesteader, is allowed to use of arable land. 160 acres of fairly rich and well-watered soil, or a much smaller amount of irrigated land, may keep a family in plenty, whereas no one could get a living from 160 acres of dry pasture land capable of supporting at the outside only one head of cattle to every 10 acres. In the past, great tracts of the public domain have been fenced in by persons having no title thereto in direct defiance of the law forbidding the maintenance or construction of any such unlawful enclosure of public land. For various reasons, there has been little interference with such enclosures in the past, but ample notice has now been given the trespassers, and all such resources at the command of the government will hereafter be used to put a stop to such trespassing. In view of the capital importance of these matters, I commend them to the earnest consideration of the Congress, and if the Congress finds difficulty in dealing with them from lack of thorough knowledge of the subject, I recommend that provision be made for a commission of experts specially to investigate and report upon the complicated questions involved. I especially urge upon the Congress the need of wide legislation for Alaska. It is not to our credit as a nation that Alaska, which has been ours for 35 years, should still have as poor a system of laws as is the case. No country has a more valuable possession in mineral wealth, in fisheries, furs, forests, and also in land available for certain kinds of farming and stock growing. It is a territory of great size and varied resources, well fitted to support a large permanent population. Alaska needs a good land law and such provisions for homesteads and preemptions as will encourage permanent settlement. We should shape legislation with a view not to the exploiting and abandoning of the territory, but to the building up of homes therein. The land laws should be liberal in type 
so as to hold out inducements to the actual settler, whom we most desire to see take possession of the country. The forests of Alaska should be protected, and, as a secondary but still important matter, the game also. And at the same time, it is imperative that the settlers should be allowed to cut timber, under proper regulations, for their own use. Laws should be enacted to protect the Alaskan salmon fisheries against the greed which would destroy them. They should be preserved as a permanent industry and food supply. Their management and control should be turned over to the Commission of Fish and Fisheries. Alaska should have a delegate in the Congress. It would be well if a congressional committee could visit Alaska and investigate its needs on the ground. In dealing with the Indians, our aim should be their ultimate absorption into the body of our people. But in many cases, this absorption must and should be very slow. In portions of the Indian Territory, the mixture of blood has gone on at the same time with progress in wealth and education, so that there are plenty of men with varying degrees of purity of Indian blood who are absolutely indistinguishable in point of social, political, and economic ability from their white associates. There are other tribes which have, as yet, made no perceptible advance toward such equality. To try to force such tribes too fast is to prevent their going forward at all. Moreover, the tribes live under widely different conditions. Where a tribe has made considerable advance and lives on fertile farming soil, it is possible to allot the members lands in severalty, much as is the case with white settlers. There are other tribes where such a course is not desirable. On the arid prairie lands, the effort should be to induce the Indians to lead pastoral rather than agricultural lives, and to permit them to settle in villages rather than force them into isolation. The large Indian schools, situated remote from any Indian reservation, do a special and peculiar work of great importance. But, excellent though these are, an immense amount of additional work must be done on the reservations themselves among the old and, above all, among the young Indians. The first and most important step toward the absorption of the Indian is to teach him to earn his living. Yet it is not necessarily to be assumed that in each community all Indians must become either tillers of the soil or stock raisers. Their industries may properly be diversified and those who show special desire or adaptability for industrial or even commercial pursuits should be encouraged, so far as practicable, to follow out each his own bent. Every effort should be made to develop the Indian along the lines of natural aptitude, and to encourage the existing native industries peculiar to certain tribes, such as the various kinds of basket weaving, canoe building, smith work, and blanket work. Above all, the Indian boys and girls should be given confident command of colloquial English, and should ordinarily be prepared for a vigorous struggle with the conditions under which their people live, rather than for immediate absorption into some more highly developed community. The officials who represent the government in dealing with the Indians work under hard conditions, and also under conditions which render it easy to do wrong and very difficult to detect wrong. Consequently, they should be amply paid on the one hand, and on the other hand, a particularly high standard of conduct should be demanded from them, and where misconduct can be proved, the punishment should be exemplary.
In no department of governmental work in recent years has there been greater success than that of giving scientific aid to the farming population, thereby showing them how most efficiently to help themselves. There is no need of insisting upon its importance, for the welfare of the farmer is fundamentally necessary to the welfare of the republic as a whole. In addition to such work as quarantine against animal and vegetable plagues, and warring against them when here introduced, much efficient help has been rendered to the farmer by the introduction of new plants, specially fitted for cultivation under the peculiar conditions existing in different portions of the country. New cereals have been established in the semi-arid West. For instance, the practicability of producing the best types of macaroni wheats in regions of annual rainfall of only 10 inches or thereabouts has been conclusively demonstrated. Through the introduction of new rices in Louisiana and Texas, the production of rice in this country has been made to about equal the home demand. In the Southwest, the possibility of regrassing overstocked rangelands has been demonstrated. In the North, many new forage crops have been introduced, while in the East, it has been shown that some of our choicest fruits can be stored and shipped in such a way as to find a profitable market abroad. I again recommend for the favorable consideration of the Congress the plans of the Smithsonian Institute for making the museum under its charge worthy of the nation, and for preserving at the national capital not only records of the vanishing races of men, but of the animals of this continent which, like the buffalo, will soon become extinct unless specimens from which their representatives may be renewed are sought in their native regions and maintained there in safety. The District of Columbia is the only part of our territory in which the national government exercises local or municipal functions, and where, in consequence, the government has a free hand in reference to certain types of social and economic legislation which must be essentially local or municipal in their character. The government should see to it, for instance, that the hygienic and sanitary legislation affecting Washington is of a high character. The evils of slum dwellings, whether in the shape of crowded and congested tenement house districts or of the back alley type, should never be permitted to grow up in Washington. The city should be a model in every respect for all the cities of the country. The charitable and correctional systems of the district should receive consideration at the hands of the Congress to the end that they may embody the results of the most advanced thought in these fields. Moreover, while Washington is not a great industrial city, there is some industrialism here, and our labor legislation, while it would not be important in itself, might be made a model for the rest of the nation. We should pass, for instance, a wise Employers' Liability Act for the District of Columbia, and we need such an act in our Navy Yards. Railroad companies in the district ought to be required by law to block their frogs. The Safety Appliance Law for the better protection of the lives and limbs of railway employees, which was passed in 1893, went into full effect on August 1, 1901. It has resulted in averting thousands of casualties. Experience shows, however, the necessity of additional legislation to perfect this law. A bill to provide for this passed the Senate at the last session. It is to be hoped that some such measure may now be enacted into law.
there is a growing tendency to provide for the publication of masses of documents for which there is no public demand and for the printing of which there is no real necessity. Large numbers of volumes are turned out by the government printing presses for which there is no justification. Nothing should be printed by any of the departments unless it contains something of permanent value, and the Congress could, with advantage, cut down very materially on all the printing which it has now become customary to provide. The excessive cost of government printing is a strong argument against the position of those who are inclined, on abstract grounds, to advocate the government's doing any work which can, with propriety, be left in private hands. Gratifying progress has been made during the year in the extension of the merit system of making appointments in the government service. It should be extended by law to the District of Columbia. It is much to be desired that our consular system be established by law on a basis providing for appointment and promotion only in consequence of proved fitness. Through a wise provision of the Congress at its last session, the White House, which had become disfigured by incongruous additions and changes, has now been restored to what it was planned to be by Washington. In making the restorations, the utmost care has been exercised to come as near as possible to the early plans and to supplement these plans by a careful study of such buildings as that of the University of Virginia, which was built by Jefferson. The White House is the property of the nation, and so far as is compatible with living therein, it should be kept as it originally was, for the same reasons that we keep Mount Vernon as it originally was. The stately simplicity of its architecture is an expression of the character of the period in which it was built and is in accord with the purposes it was designed to serve. It is a good thing to preserve such buildings as historical monuments which keep alive our sense of continuity with the nation's past. The reports of the several executive departments are submitted to the Congress with this communication. End of Section 6 Recording by Paul Thomas.